Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. Today's talk is by Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott, Extension Urban Horticulturist and Associate Professor at Washington State University and Affiliate Associate Professor at the University of Washington. Her talk is on the topic of organic pesticides and the science behind their efficacy. It was originally presented at the 2014 ISA International Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, last night at about midnight, I was kicking myself for choosing this topic <laughs> as I was getting everything tidied up. I had no idea that this was such a complex topic, and I've got to squish it into 40 minutes. So it is really a 20,000-foot overview of, of the science out there. And so I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to really be focusing on things that are well-documented to work. I'm really be looking at things where there's not as much evidence and try to, try to suss out which things are worth trying and which things really aren't in terms of scientific um, support for it. So first of all, before I get started on the lists that are out there, um, I want to just briefly talk about pesticide modes of action. So we're going to look at some that are preventative, and the, the caution here is you have to be able to predict what's going to happen in terms of is it going to rain, is something going to, are eggs going to hatch of this particular pest? I mean, you really have to kind of know, um, predict the future. It's sometimes rather difficult to do. And um, the preventative things, obviously, are, are things will uh, decrease feeding, decrease egg laying, and decrease spore or seed germination. Then there's things that are curative. Um, the, these ones may not take the plant completely back to normal, but it pretty much takes the, the problem down to a, a level where it's not going to affect the plant um, uh, too much health-wise. And this um, is usually either by suffocation of, of the pest, uh, starvation, or disruption of some um, biochemical or physiological process. And a lot of this stuff has been done in insects. So you, um, many of the things we'll look at that happen to have um, very targeted effects are, are curative, as they do pretty much tend to, to wipe out what the pest is. So first of all, um, feeding. Um, what types of things can actually prevent feeding? Well, there's things like odor. Odor can be repellent um, or fear-inducing. So, gee, if I saw this can of um, uh, coyote urine that had a, a, a snarling coyote on it, I would be fearful, and apparently some things, when they smell that, that urine, they're fearful as well. Uh, taste is another thing you can affect. Um, it can be an irritant type of taste. This would be something like um, uh, hot pepper or something that's going to uh, irritate the mucous membranes or have a repellent taste. Um, putrescent egg solids are a really good example of that. I've not tried them. I don't think they would taste very good. Uh, and then there's touch. You can affect um, or, or inhibit uh, things from even starting to eat something if it happens to be uh, oily 
uh, surface or a gritty surface. Those types of things uh, will put a lot of uh, herbivores off uh, their food because they don't, they don't like the, the feeling in their mouth. So those are some of the ways that, that um, uh, herbicides, I'm sorry, insecticides and some of the other uh, herbivore uh, compounds work. Uh, preventative for egg laying and germination, um, there's a couple different ways. This can work for insects. Uh, you can either make the surface inaccessible by covering it with something so the insect can actually attach its eggs to the leaf surface or make the surface unpleasant. Uh, gritty things will make the surface unpleasant for the insect to lay eggs upon. Um, similarly, with fungal spore germination, uh, make the surface inaccessible so that the fungal spores can't actually get, um, and when, they're, when they're germinating, they can't uh, get into the tissue or to change the surface chemistry, and usually this is by pH. So those are some of the ways you can prevent um, these particular pests. Um, curative suffocation can be either clogging pores in the case of insects or covering surfaces of things, especially uh, things like larvae, uh, so soft-bodied insects, or, or spores of, of fungi. Um, starvation gets to be quite interesting in terms of what various compounds can do. There are digestive system poisons, which either will um, literally poke holes in the gut or otherwise affect the way the digestive system works so the insect isn't able to um, take up much nourishment from whatever it's eating, or disrupting some process. Again, um, this might be cuticle abrasion, which happens with... Um, um, some of the grittier things around uh, insect cuticles, also going to be cuticle disruption on the leaf surface, for that matter. Growth and development can be interrupted, especially by things like nematodes and some of the other little interesting um, parasitoids out there. Enzyme poisoning, where you're actually keeping an enzyme, a, a, a critical enzyme from functioning, or a neurotoxin. So there's been a lot of work done on, on targeting particular processes, especially in insects, finding compounds, or in some cases biocontrol organisms to, to target those so that we make our, our insecticides much more um, localized. And in organic um, pesticides, it's sometimes difficult to do that because you're pretty much stuck with whatever is naturally occurring as opposed to something that can be synthesized in a lab. So what I did in terms of this study um, is I looked, at, uh, looked through databases that contain all the scientific um, papers. I try to focus on things that are more current. Um, some of these things, especially some of the older organic uh, um, pesticides, go back to the early 1900s. Um, doesn't mean they don't work, it's just, uh, and I am not dismissing their, the work, but some of the things I'm trying to focus on have been developed much more recently. Um, secondly, um, it was interesting to note while I was doing this that right around the uh, 1940s, a lot of the things that we're using now in terms of organic pesticides and just starting to get more interested in were coming along at the same time that DDT was invented. And so all the organic stuff was kind of shoved, shoved aside because DDT was so much more effective. And so now we're coming back to that work that was done uh, 70 years ago. I only included materials that are certified as organic through OMRI. So if you're not familiar with OMRI, it's Organic Materials Review Institute. Um, they, they look at all this material, they, they decide whether or not it, it is, it's considered to be organic for organic farming purposes. So this is if you want things that are certified for organic use. And a lot of customers now really want um, organic management, and so they will insist that things are on the OMRI list. I should mention also the EPA um, obviously uh, has testing required for human, um, human health and environmental health before things are approved through them. So EPA has to approve it, OMRI has to approve it, 
um, as part of their national pesticide, uh, a national organic pesticide program, and then your state list will have to include it. And I need to be really careful about mentioning this because every state is different in what you can use. So when I've given this talk before to Washington State, which is where I live, it's a very short talk because we don't have nearly as many of the things to talk about as there are on the complete list. So some of these things that are on here, you're not gonna be able to use in your state. So I just wanna be really clear about that because you can get in real trouble recommending something that's not listed in your state as, as usable. But because this is an international meeting, I want to just cover everything that's, that's out there on this particular list. And I'm really focusing on things that are, that are for potential practical use in landscapes. Um, there's a lot of things that might be used for crop production. In fact, most of the things that have been developed are for crop uh, production. So you know, something against corn earworm or um, army beetworm or something like that, which is great, but we're not growing beets and corn. You know, we're taking care of trees and shrubs, other types of landscape plants. So the list becomes very compressed when you start limiting it to those factors. Um, but, but in terms of the practicality, that's really what I think is most important for, for, for our group. So the OMRI website, if you're not familiar with it, how many people have looked at the OMRI website before? Oh, good. If you haven't, it's worth looking at because it, it's updated frequently. There's all kinds of new products that are being added. You can search in a variety of ways. You can search by company. You can search by product. You can search by crop category. And this is pretty much what I did. So um, right here... You can, you can click on this and it says sorted by category. And so this, what this allows me to do is, is figure out um, which things are actually for, for pesticide use as opposed to for fertilizer or something else. Because if you just get the whole list, it's stuff that's not even related to, to pesticides necessarily. So the crop pest, weed, and disease control part of this list, which again, it's free, it's downloadable, is, is several pages. And here's the first page, just so you can see what it looks like in case you're looking for it. So crop pest, weed, and disease control right now is page 36. And the reason, other reason I have this up here, I want to point out that even though there's some things listed over here as being organic and being approved as organic, they may not be allowed for use in the United States. So there's a little symbol that's right here, it kind of looks like a, like a bug <laughs> from a distance anyway. And it says products with this symbol are not permitted for use as pesticide in the United States. So even if it's listed on this list, it still might not be permitted. And I get very confused when I look at all this because I'm not a pesticide specialist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a horticultural physiologist. And so I don't know why they have it listed if you can't use it, but, but there you go. So make sure that you're in that section when you start looking through this if you do. And before we start going through the list of all the pesticides that are out there and what they may or may not do, um, do remember that when things are registered by the EPA, that the EPA does not require efficacy testing. So even if it's registered and it says it has no harm to human health, it has no environmental health effects, it might not work. And that's very common with an awful lot of things. So it, even though it's registered, it doesn't mean that it's efficacious. Secondly, if you start going through a lot of this literature, be really careful that you see where the success has been found. If it's been found in the lab, it works great in the lab, works great in the greenhouse, that's all fine and good, but that's completely different than working well in the field. So sometimes you have to kind of make the leap if there hasn't been a lot of testing on a particularly new product and, and it works in the greenhouse, but you don't know about the field, this still might be worth trying. But there's, 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 a, there's several um, products that, that do work well in the lab or the field, I mean the lab or the greenhouse, but once you get out in the field, it really has no effect. So that's the other caveat to keep in mind. So, 
this huge list of, of pesticides. And I was, it's, I love organizing things into boxes, I really do, but this, this, this particular um, subject really challenged me. So what I came up with was just giving you these lists of these compounds. And by the way, the, the list of these compounds are in on the ISA website, if you happen to download the pages for that. Did anyone do that? It's about three pages long. <laughs> if you don't have it, um, I'll give you my email address um, afterwards and I can send this to you because it's a long list of stuff. So I'm gonna mark off the ones that, are, that have robust science behind their use, and that's gonna be a blue star. If it's got a blue star, we're not really gonna talk about it because it's got a lot of science, it's demonstrated to work on, on, particular, um, on particular pests anyway, whether it works on the pest of your interest, uh, we don't know. If the research results are mixed, I've got a question mark by it. So that means that it works in some situations or on some pests, but not necessarily in other situations. If I have a, a no symbol, that means that the research does not support the use in the study context. So that might mean, okay, well, we've got this wonder, wonderful MPV, that's a, that's a virus, that works on um, cabbage looper, but you know, we're not growing cabbage, so we're not gonna worry about things that, that don't work on, on woody plants at all. And then I've got a red bar, minus, for those products where the, the research does not support the use as a pesticide at all. Now, I will tell you that I was pleasantly surprised not to ever have very many minuses that showed up. There's a lot of question marks that show up, and those ones are kind of interesting to talk about. So, <laughs> here's a list of inorganic chemicals, and it's kind of tiny, but I'll read them off for you. So we've got boric acid, we've got copper, diatomaceous earth, ferric phosphate, hydrogen peroxide, kaolin, lime sulfur, potassium bicarbonate, potassium silicate, sodium carbonate peroxyhydrate, sodium chloride, and sulfur. So these, these categories, I should mention, are categories that, that OMRI has come up with. So they, they put these things under inorganic chemicals, organic chemicals, whatever. I may quibble about how they put them in there, but I really have to go by what their list says. So of those, all these blue-starred ones, lots of good robust science behind its usage. So boric acid, copper, diatomaceous earth, ferric phosphate, kaolin, lime sulfur, potassium bicarbonate sulfur are all efficacious products. Potassium silicate is an interesting one, and I hadn't really heard of this before. Um, and it turns out that I don't think you can really consider it to be a pesticide. Um, what it's used for uh, is, is supposedly as a fungicide. Um, but it doesn't really have fungicidal properties. What happens when you use it as a soil drench, certain plants, especially monocots, and some dicots tend to take a lot of the silica up, and it apparently makes their leaves more resistant to attack. So it tends to be something that has more of a, I hate to use the word fertilizer property, but I'm gonna say that. And again, it works in some plants, but it doesn't work in a lot of other dicots. And in fact, um, the researchers call these uh, silicon refusers, that, or rejectors, that they won't take it up. But it's kind of an interesting compound. So it can't really be considered to be a pesticide because it's not having a negative effect on the, on the life cycle of the pest, it's just having a more robust um, effect on the plant itself. And then hydrogen peroxide, sodium carbonate peroxyhydrate, and sodium chloride. Um, the science behind the use of those as pesticides is, is either very old or not in um, very good journals or just not, not there at all. So using sodium chloride on slugs, and yes, there was a recent, recent paper not um, from this country and not in a journal I'd never heard of before that was recommending using salt on slugs. And I just thought that was really quite amazing because I thought we gave that one up 
long, long ago. So those three things are not recommended. The hydrogen peroxide and um, sodium carbonate peroxyhydrate are oxidizing agents, and I think that the reason that they're included on the list um, is not so much because they're used on pathogens in the field, but they might be used for cleaning pots, cleaning media before you use again, like rock wool media, things like that where you've got to make sure that you have things um, completely clean before you're potting things up. So I think those might be why those two are listed there, even though this is supposedly just for crops. Okay, then the list of organic chemicals. We've got citric acid, limonene, Oils, and these are oils without biological activity, so it'd be things like um, things that were based on uh, petroleum products or, or the, what I'd call um, oils with physical effects, so things like safflower oil, things that tend to have a, a physical um, deterrence against attack by, by fungi, for instance. Uh, Prosthetic acid, soap, uh, sucrose, octanoate, ester, and vitamin D3. So with that list of organics, these last five are all effective. Limonene, um, it's another one of those ones where, the, where, where it's a mixed message. Um, you're probably familiar with limonene because it's the one that um, makes, uh, if, you, if you use Orange Glow or any of those orange cleaning products, you know, that really just kind of take the, I mean, they take the tartar off your teeth, they could take the, the finish off of anything, um, they'll take the finish off a leaf. So they tend to be very phytotoxic. So, you know, if you're killing the patient as you're trying to take care of the disease, I can't really say it's very effective. And then uh, citric acid and peracetic acid, uh, both of those are, are, again, things that um, really don't work in the context of, of taking care of living plants. Um, they might be effective in um, uh, treating wastewater or something else, and sometimes that's included as part of um, organic practices. And the botanical derivatives, this is the longest list of all, and so I'm not going to tax your patients with reading them all off, but I'll tell you about right off, hand, right off the bat that about half of these are, are what I call essential oils. I'm going to spend a little time talking about them in a bit. Um, in terms of the ones that are the most effective, um, as a directin, you're probably familiar with castor oil, which again is one of what I'd call a physical oil. It's not, a, not an essential oil, but it's one that has a physical um, effect, as does sesame oil. Uh, pyrethrum. Uh, Renutria extract, and Renutria is the old name for um, uh, fallopia, which is uh, knotweed. So it's related to Japanese knotweed, but it's actually from a different knotweed. Uh, Sabadilla and soap bark tree extract. So those ones are, have, have some good, robust science behind their use. And the rest of them are all what I, again, call the essential oils. So these are the ones that you can smell. They're volatile, and we're going to talk about why the, their use is, is rather questionable. I'll tell you right now, you probably have clients that love you to use this stuff. How many people have, people, have clients who want them to use essential oils? You're, it's going to become more and more, I think, because they're those things, I mean, they make you feel good to use them because they smell so good, except maybe the garlic. <laughs> and so people like to use them, and there's a lot of products out there on the shelves that are, that are these oils or mixtures of these oils, and they smell good. So they have a real, real pull to, um, to your clients. The biocontrol organisms are, are really quite amazing. Um, what's come out, uh, as I said, um, some of these were discovered decades ago, but were kind of left alone until more recently. Um, these are all bacteria that have effects either against other bacteria, fungi, or insects, and they all work, except for, oddly enough, this one Streptomyces um, species is listed on there. It happens to be the one thing that causes potato scab. And I couldn't find any research on how it was a beneficial 
in terms of, of being an antagonistic um, uh, microorganism against uh, fungi or something like that. So I couldn't find any research on why that particular streptomyces was on there. The other two are on there because they fight against uh, fire blight. So those uh, streptomyces are very effective that way, but the other one, I don't know why that one's on there. There's a, uh, several fungi and uh, related species, so things like oocytes I've included on here as well. Uh, big laundry list of them, and once again, they're all effective. This is the cool thing. I think that biocontrol um, you know, is, is really kind of the wave, uh, continues to be the wave of the future. You, know, you find what's going to be effective against a particular pest, and you study the heck out of it, and test it, and then you use it. And all the ones that have been um, listed here have been studied exhaustively and are, are very effective. Um, nematodes, there's a couple of, of ones listed here, uh, Steiner nema. They're effective, and as I said, coddling moth, um, granulosis virus, um, if you happen to have apple trees that you're dealing with, um, you might be, or pear trees, you might be using um, this particular virus. The other two um, viruses are not on things that, that affect trees. In the first case, it affects corn, and the second one is, is uh, beets. So those two, even though it's, it's good science and there's a lot of work on it, it's not really relevant to, to, to managing woody plants. And then the biological products. Um, and there were some interesting ones there as well, and I'm sure you've probably seen some of these. I know you've seen some of these before because they're very popular. Um, pheromones, again, they're ones that have been isolated and studied and, and have been found effective. Uh, spinosad is a fermentation product, and then you've got streptomycin and tetracycline. All of those are effective. Um, the last two in particular, again, are on fire blight. So this is when they're looking at um, with the ones I mentioned earlier, the streptomyces, it's um, obviously where the streptomycin sulfate came from, and tetracycline, again, is a, a well-known antibiotic. The blood, the coyote, uh, or fox urine, and the egg solids, um, it's iffy, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. This, that's where the, the least research is on some of these animal products. Um, which is unfortunate because I think they're very popular and I think that a lot of us um, could really use them as we're trying to keep deer and other things away from browsing, especially new plantings. And then the rhamnolipid uh, biosurfactants were put in here. Again, I'm not really sure why because it turns out the only reason that they are um, included, I think, is for treating wastewater and for treating soils during restoration. So they're really not um, a pesticide, therefore a completely different purpose. So if you run across that in the list, just be aware that it's not something that you can really use. Okay, um, I wanted to mention uh, the bactericides. Um, again, I, I mentioned uh, streptomycin sulfate and tetracycline already, but all these things, um, uh, including the, the species on top there, will fight against fire blight. And that, as far as I know, is the only, well, I think walnut blight also. So these are some of the things, and the nice thing is you've got the biocontrol organisms, and then you've got some um, uh, antibiotics that you can kind of go back and forth, because of course the concern would be building up resistance. And the streptomycin and tetracycline work has been going on for decades, and places all over the world are really studying to see if they're building up resistance to either of these two um, uh, antibiotics in, in, the, in the blight organisms, and they're not, which is kind of surprising. And I think that especially if you can go back and forth between these two things so that you don't tend to get a population resistant to one thing, then you, then you reduce that problem. 
Um, the fungicides uh, that were effective, um, boric acid, actually you've probably heard of using that before for insects, and I'll mention that in a little bit. It's also effective as a fungicide, um, as is copper, uh, kaolin, and neem, uh, physical oils, potassium bicarbonate, renutria, soap, um, and it also includes the soap, soap bark extracts, and then sulfur. And some of those I'm sure you've heard of and you've used um, sulfur um, and soap have been around for a long, long time as have the physical oils, potassium bicarbonate, and I always am trying to encourage homeowners not to use sodium bicarbonate because one, it's not registered to use it for, and secondly, the sodium buildup is not necessarily good for plants. But all these things have good effectiveness against, um, against fungi specific fungi, and sometimes broad fungi. And so this is just the same list, again, I was showing you before, and what I've tried to do now is take the inorganics, the organics, um, and the biocontrol things, and then put them into the category where they fit. So I'm just, it's just rearranging them to give you a different context. Um, there's a ton of fungal antagonists. And the research on this is really pretty interesting to read. Some of these things are, are really, uh, you know, you think about these things all being uh, <laughs> microbes and the fact that they have these behaviors is pretty fascinating. So when you see things like trichoderma, and that's what's over there in that um, picture on the um, right, you know, it's, it's winding its way around um, a, fun a fungus that it's antagonistic towards and it's going to eventually kill it. So it's, it's interesting to see that these, these microbes really have very distinct behaviors that, that I don't think we would have considered fungi behavior to even exist several years ago. Um, herbicides, there's really not much out there that works very well as an herbicide that's organic. Um, of course, there's soap, herbicidal soaps. They've been around for a long time, but it's very broad spectrum. Um, Renutria is kind of interesting. It's been used to fight kudzu and um, I think red trumpet creeper and some of the other really, really aggressive viney types of plants. And that was about the only research I could find that was actually on Renutria as, as an herbicide. But it might be worth looking at in terms of, of trying to treat populations of, um, of kudzu or, I don't know, Bert, what was the one that you had uh, in, the, in the trees that they spread? Yeah, it'd be kind of interesting to see if it might work on that because it seems to be working on vines that are very rapidly growing for whatever reason. And then insecticides, um, all of these, uh, I, I have azadiractin there with neem just to point out that azadiractin itself is an extract of neem which has herbicidal activity. Neem has herb, uh, insecticidal activity. Neem also does. Azadiractin does not have fungicidal activity, but neem does. So recognize that neem itself is not a compound. It's a whole bunch of compounds mixed together. And whether it's synergism or just um, you know, you know, a different compound that's in there, you can get some good fungicidal activity with neem, but you won't get it with azadiractin. You have to use you know, the, the, the total compound rather than just the specific one. Um, boric acid, this is the one that's used as baits. Um, it, it's one of those intestinal disruptors. Uh, insects will take it back to their nests, and so it works well on things like cockroaches and, and ants that will take it back, and then other things that, that eat um, or come in contact with, with the feces will, will also pick it up, and, and then they'll die. Uh, diatomaceous earth and uh, kaolin tend to be fairly abrasive and also tend to clog um, the, the spicules. Uh, neem, um, the oils, 
uh, pheromones, and I didn't mention those, but there's um, several of those, and they work, so there's no point in talking about them. Pyrethrum, sabadilla, soap, spinosad, and then the sucrose octanoate ester. So a good, a good variety of, of um, compounds. Again, some of these may not work on the pests that you're interested in, and at this point, all I can do is suggest that you try them as long as they're registered for use in your state. That's what, the, that's what happens when the, when the ants are finding the boric acid baits. This is what um, diatomaceous earth looks like. It's, it's, well, it's what the diatoms look like, and they're silica-based, and so they're very abrasive and, and can uh, rub down the cuticle of insects. And then there's a spinosad um, product. So you can get these things very, very easily anywhere. Um, more insecticides, these are, the, these are the biological control organisms. Um, some of them are bacterial, some of them are fungal, um, and some of them are nematodes. And that's what milky spore disease look like. I mean, the, what some of these biocontrol things do is really pretty gruesome. It's fun looking for pictures of them, and especially if you've got pests that, that you, that you <laughs> would like to see this happen to, you can take some, some kind of um, uh, delight in watching, watching it happen under a microscope. Now, I wanted to mention some other, pe this other pesticides. There's not very many of them from, from our organic standpoint. The only molluscicide that was out there that persistently has uh, molluscicide activity is ferric phosphate, and that's the baits that are used now. Um, and, and there's some question of whether or not they're safe for animals. Uh, initially, when it came out, they're supposed to be uh, safe for dogs. There's been some suggestion now that they might actually be toxic to dogs if, you, if they eat enough of them. Um, so that the, the jury's still out. It works well on slugs. Um, there's one nematicide, and when you look uh, in, the, in the list, you'll see it listed as, as one particular type of, of fungi. It's been recently renamed. So you're not going to find it in the literature necessarily as the Paciliomyces. You have to look under the, the new name, but in the, the OMRI list, it's, it's uh, the old name. And then the rodenticide, which is uh, vitamin D3. So interesting enough, this, this particular vitamin, which we all um, need to have and take, uh, is, is toxic to rodents and actually several other things as well. Cats and dogs can get into this and um, have problems. It has the unfortunate ability to uh, relocate calcium um, from the skeleton into various organs and kind of just calcify. So it's, it's kind of interesting how that works on some animals, but doesn't seem to have the same effect on us. Maybe we just don't get enough of it. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about browsers, because I think that all of us um, that are doing things with trees uh, and shrubs are, are facing this almost on a daily basis on trying to keep the browsers away. And do these baits work? And do these, uh, and not the baits, do the, do the deterrents work? Um, and if they do, which ones work best? So there's four modes of action for things that have the ability to deter browsers. And it doesn't matter where you're talking about rabbits or deer or moose or, or what it is, but looking at, at, at you know, the, furry, the furry mammalian things that are, that are eating plants. The first one's what's called neophobia. So this is just inducing fear. And, and meat, meats and bone meals are supposed to do this. But the problem is, if something's really hungry, it really doesn't care if something has died there and it can smell you know, the bones from it. So it might initially stay away from it and look for other browse, but if, it, if animals are hungry enough, especially in the wintertime, that's not gonna have an effect. 
The second one is conditioned aversion. So this is, this is and I'll speak to from experience. When I was three years old, I overate a whole bunch of divinity that my, my grandmother had made for Christmas. And then I proceeded to throw it all up. And I've not been able to eat divinity since. So that's what conditioned aversion is. You see it, it's made you sick before, and you avoid it. So these are chemicals that are added to, to foods that animals would normally eat that then they eat it, they get gastric upset, and then they tend to avoid it. And sometimes, again, that can work, but if animals are hungry enough, it's not gonna work as well. Um, what tends to work better are things that are irritating. Um, capsaicin is a good example, that's what's in hot peppers, or flavor modification, making food taste differently, and that's what blood meal is used for. So these last two, the irritation flavor modification, tend to be things that animals have a harder time habituating to. They get over the fear um, a lot faster. So some of these things that work, blood meal actually works. There's a lot more work on this now than there was when I looked at it about 10 years ago. So if you add it to the foliage directly, not scatter it on the ground or something like that. If you add it to the foliage, it will tend to repel deer. They don't like the way it tastes. However, it can be phytotoxic depending on the plants you put it on. So if it's things that have a relatively thin cuticle, um, they may be, you may get some damage on, 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 the, on the leaves. And rabbits don't care. So you can go ahead and add, add, it to the, add it to whatever rabbits eat. Rabbits don't care. That's why they're rabbits. That's why there's so many of them. Um, coyote and fox urine, another one of those products that several years ago when I first looked couldn't find anything. There's been work since. Coyote urine is actually pretty effective against deer, mountain beaver, and possums. So those are the species that have been looked at. Unfortunately, with rodents, it has no effect. That's probably why rodents are the way they are. So coyote urine works pretty well. Fox urine's been found to work against gray squirrels. So either of these two predators, their urine tends to work fairly well. And, and I'm always fascinated by people that study urine. So, and, and they're not just studying the coyote urine and fox urine, they're studying all kinds of urine, including, yes, you guessed it, human urine, to find out if all these things work. So before you wonder if you can go out and pee on the plants, if that's gonna work, it won't, unless you happen to have a diet of deer, mountain beaver, possums, or gray squirrels. Because that's what they sense. They sense what's in the diet. So if it's a non-predator, even if it's a carnivore, if it's a non-predator carnivore, the urine doesn't affect it. So it has to be something that has that diet, it eats those things, and the smell that comes from the urine then will, will keep them away. So that's your choice. <laughs> you, can, you, can either call, you can either use the box stuff or you can change your diet and see if you can do it all by yourself. Putrescent egg solids. Um, they work, but not for very long. So they've tried them on elk, and it's again one of these things where it washes off, you know, loses its effectiveness, and so after about five weeks, it stops working. Um, deer don't really seem to care as much as elk do. Um, and cattle, which sometimes can be a problem, maybe not so much in the cities, but in more rural areas, uh, it lasts about three weeks before, it's, before it has to be reapplied. So it's one of those things where, yes, it does work, but you have to reapply it so often, it makes, it, it makes you wonder whether it's cost-effective and really w worth your time. And if browsing intensity is low, in other words, it's summertime, whatever, and they have other things they can go eat, they're more likely to leave it alone. So that's probably the best time to use it. Trying to protect in the winter with this product is not going to be effective. The essential oils are really kind of interesting. There's a whole bunch of them, as I mentioned. There's black pepper, cedar, clove, cinnamon, garlic, limonene, and limonene's an extract, actually, out, that's, that's found in many of these. Uh, peppermint, rosemary, thyme, and wintergreen. So all of these things have essential oils in them, and they have more than one. 
So it gets really complicated trying to figure out what it is exactly that has its effect. Um, and a lot of the products, as I mentioned, are mixtures. They're not just one, one compound. So why aren't they effective all the time? Okay, the other oils I mentioned before, sesame oil, um, castor oil, those things uh, have, a, has a, have a physical deterrence, either because they make something taste bad or not taste bad, they have, a, have an icky feeling, or they just keep spores from being able to, to reach the leaf surface. These things are volatile, which means they evaporate, which means you can smell them. So they're volatile, they don't last very long in the landscape. So they really don't work very well for outdoor use. They have incredibly good luck using this for um, working against uh, beetles that get into flour or um, thing, you know, any kind of household pest where you can actually enclose things. They do work fairly well, especially things like thyme oil is very effective but it doesn't work outside because things evaporate too quickly. They volatilize too quickly. However, if you're doing something where you're trying to take care of bees, especially with the mites, um, that there are problem with beehives, these things are really effective against mites and they don't affect the bees. So if any of you are involved with trying to, to manage uh, bee populations, you might consider using, using some of these essential oils. They can be phytotoxic if they're applied directly to the foliage because they're just that kind of compound and they also just, um, they, they can have kind of that scouring activity like, like several um, secondary compounds can. And they're really not very cost effective because you have to apply them over and over and over. So if you're using them outside, you have to keep applying them. Um, inside use is much more effective. So if you can, when you have your customers, you know, try to encourage them to use them indoors, but, but explain the outdoors, it's really not gonna be a very good use of their money. At the store, you're gonna find the mixed, the mixed products. And there's one paper that came out that was studying these. I, I was so grateful that they did this. And what they found was, was several very interesting points to make. One is that when you blend the extracts, so if you put together clove oil and thyme oil and rose, rosemary oil, it doesn't make them more effective necessarily. It might not make them worse in terms of having any biological activity. Um, most of these essential oil products have not been studied in a rigorous scientific way. Um, you t we tend just to kind of use them because they're out there on the shelf and because they've been approved as, as organic products. And they're really quite variable in terms of what they'll work on. So you know, here's one example. It's a mixture of clove oil, and I can't read the rest of it from here, but, but this is what you'll find. It's usually a mixture of three or four of these compounds, and they'll work against some pests. Some of them do and some of them don't, and some of them are very phytotoxic. So they're just not very good choices. Um, this is what phytotoxicity looks like from these oils, and generally these are from the volatile oils, although some of the physical oils can do this as well. So the trick with this is if you're gonna use these oils is understand that um, they're, they're species specific and what they're gonna have effects on. Things that tend to have really thick cuticles don't tend to be as bothered by it. Um, you can apply too much quite easily. If when the temperature's too high, don't apply it, and test it first on something where it doesn't make a difference. So you know, test it on some foliage where it's not going to be seen and see if you're going to have that, that, that phytotoxicity problem. Potential drawbacks. Some of these things are really broad spectrum. Um, even though they're organic, even though they're natural, doesn't mean that they're safe. It doesn't mean they're targeted towards one thing and they can have, have repercussions on, on, on other insects. So honeybees, um, predator insects, uh, amphibians, all these things are, are 
animals to keep in mind if you're going to use any of these organic chemicals, just as you would use any pesticide. You often have to apply it more frequently. Organic things break down more rapidly than synthetic compounds do, so you're going to have to apply it more frequently. It means it's more expensive. And pests can still develop resistance. So especially if you're using something that's not um, a physical type of deterrence, if it's something where it's interfering with a biochemical process, insects evolve. And, they may, and so do fungi and bacteria. So things can, can become resistant to whatever that pesticide is. And of course, there's a phytotoxicity problem. So these compounds are worth trying with, with the caveats. Um, as I said, uh, you know, get into the literature, uh, well, not the literature, get into the list, and um, see, see what's out there that's, that's legal for your state, and, and maybe give it a shot. And I'll be happy to try to answer questions um, as much as I can, remembering I'm not a pesticide specialist, if, if you've got any questions. Yes? You know, there aren't any studies on dog urine. So that was one, oddly enough, they study people urine, but not dog urine. So, you know, it's, and with, all, with these types of things, because urine is just such a natural thing to have happen on your lawn anyway, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying things like that if you've got a good way of collecting dog urine. And I guess that's the trick is, and I don't even know, I have no idea where these urine products come from. That's one, that's one place I didn't even go when I was looking. I don't know how they collect and I don't, just don't even want to know. Well, again, if you would like a list, uh, if you didn't get a chance to snap a picture or write stuff down, or you didn't have a handout, um, feel free to email me. It's a really short email. It's Linda, L-I-N-D-A, C, that's letters, uh, C as in Charlie, S as in Scott, at WSU, that's short for Washington State University, .edu. And I will send you um, a Word document that has the same the, the list and the designations for you. This concludes Dr. Linda Chalker Scott's talk on the science behind the efficacy of organic pesticides. To learn more about pest control, you can find additional material at the ISA web store, including Pests of Landscape Trees and Shrubs, an Integrated Pest Management Guide, and Managing Insects and Mites on Woody Plants, an IPM Approach. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, visit the ISA online store and select Online CEU Quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.